Thank you. Thank you. I shared with the first service that it was a little hard to take communion with Bob this morning after being at Austin's wedding and dancing with him. However, I need to clarify, I wasn't dancing with him, I was dancing with him. And if you can imagine Bob breaking out uh, breakdance, you can see why it was hard for me to kind of like process now having communion. <laughs> if you have your Bible, if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we certainly would like to give you one. Our ushers have extra Bibles. Just raise your hand. If you've never read the Bible, we hope you'll join us as we read verse by verse through the Bible. We're in the Gospel of John chapter 12. A very important chapter, and I want to thank Benjamin. Near the Cross is one of my favorite hymns, and one of my favorite lines in that hymn is, Near the Cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. In other words, have pop up on the screensaver of my soul a fresh vision and picture of Christ dying for my sins. Ironically, this morning, that's exactly what we're going to do as we're in John chapter 12, because much of John chapter 12 is about the death of Christ. But it's framed within a very interesting phrase, and that is the hour, the hour. So if you've been reading with us in the Gospel of John, I want to encourage you to find someone else to read with it and to be sharing the Gospel of John with your children. And, and, and I want to challenge you to think about something. The Word of God is supposed to dwell in us richly. If I were to ask you right now to stand up and say, share with me something from the Gospel of John that you've been clinging to, meditating on, a promise, an encouragement, an exhortation, something from the Word that, that encourages you. If you go, I don't know, I don't really think about the Gospel of John, then, then the idea wouldn't be, just, don't just listen to the Word, but let it dwell in you deeply and meditate on it. And as the Spirit brings verses out, do something to attach them to your soul, to Velcro them there, underline them, write them on a card, do something to get them out of your Bible and into your heart that they might carry and comfort and encourage you. But as we're going through John... Jesus kept saying this phrase, beginning in chapter 2, when his mother said, hey, they're out of wine. He said, mother, what do I have to do with you? My hour it hasn't yet come. And then in chapter 7, they were so angry, it says they were seeking to seize him, to, to lock him up, it says, but nobody laid their hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Then in chapter 8, it says, as Jesus taught in the temple, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But suddenly we come to chapter 12 and Jesus says, now the hour has come. And that's going to unfold for us this preoccupation with the hour in the rest of the book. In chapter 13, we're going to read next week, it says, before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Later in chapter 17, as Jesus prays the night he's going to be arrested, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. So what I want you to start with me is to think about this. What exactly does Jesus mean with this phrase, the hour has come? D.A. Carson worded it this way. I think this is a good way to word of it. 
the, when Jesus speaks of his hour, he speaks of the appointed planned time for his death, his, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension up to heaven. All of that can be summarized in his hour. This is the pinnacle of why Jesus came to earth, not just to spend 30 years, but metaphorically this, this phrase, my hour has come, all revolves around primarily his death, his suffering, his being put in the ground and then being gloriously yanked out of the grave and taken back up to heaven. Now, all of that, this hour of his death and resurrection, revolves around a greater purpose, and that is his hour is designed for his glorification. His hour, this death and resurrection, is so that it brings him and his father praise and worship from heaven and earth for the rest of eternity. So when we look at this hour in chapter 12, Jesus is going to say, Father, my hour has come. Now glorify your son. And the father's going to say, Father, I, or the father's going to say, I have glorified him and I will continue to glorify you. So the immediate death of Jesus is going to be the focus of this chapter. They kept trying to kill him. They couldn't because his hour hadn't come. Now it's time to kill him. Now his hour's come. Now his greatest pinnacle peak of glory is going to be summed up in his crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation. So the, the, this, the chapter's pretty easy to follow around that framework. We're going to start in the first seven verses where, where Mary is going to prepare for his, his hour. She's going to prepare for the hour of his death. Okay, in a very unusual way. So start with me in verse 1. It says, we'll begin in verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. Now, this means it's six days before he's going to die. Right? It's probably Palm Sunday, the evening before Palm Sunday. He comes to Bethany where Lazarus was. Now, Bethany's only a couple miles from Jerusalem. And it says, he comes to, to, to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. Maybe he's telling stories about, man, let me tell you what it was like when I was dead and, and I was with the saints. But verse 3 says, Then Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. Now, words like nard remind us of words like gnarly. And we were like, what is nard? If you were to go online and look up this, this fragrant root from a plant called spikenard, it's, it's, it was very expensive and very, very fragrant. And so a pound of that would be worth a year's salary. So we're not talking about a, a $40 bottle of Chanel du Bleu. We're talking about a year, like, who even has a, a, a year's salary? So... Is this a, a family heirloom? Or are they incredibly wealthy? But no one would use that all at once. You would just take a little bit at a time. But this type of perfume was used to anoint people when they died. Because unlike the embalming processes that we have now, they often kept a body around for a couple of days before they buried them. And to prevent this, the odor of, of um, decomposition, they would pour this fragrant perfume on them. So it says, Mary took a, a pound of this costly perfume and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now the other gospels say she poured it on his head. 
And so some people go, see, they, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, it's not unlikely. She probably poured it on both. And remember that back then they didn't sit at a table, they reclined. So, so they're laying on the ground sideways with their feet away from this little table. And she begins to pour this stuff on the head and feet of Jesus. And everyone's looking at her like, what is wrong with you? Have you gone mad? But notice Judas Iscariot, verse 4, says, he was intending to betray him, said this. Can, can we, okay. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? A denarii is a day's wage. Like, this is, cut out the weekends at all. This is a year's salary. We could have given this to the poor. This could have gone to the rescue mission. And you go, oh, maybe Judas wasn't such a bad guy after all. I mean, come on, at least, he, at least he's, he's frugal and he cares about poor people. And, and John goes, not so fast. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Again, we got to go back to that context. Jesus and the apostles had left any trade. Jesus was no longer making furniture. There was no Jesus Ikea. The fishermen were no longer fishing for their living, so a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Where were they getting money from to feed themselves? The Bible says that many women, wealthy women, followed along and were supporting Jesus. And so somebody had to be the, the treasurer. And so probably they had a contest and Judas ran for treasurer, vote for Judas, a, a chicken in every pot if you vote, or a gefilte fish in every pot if you vote for me. So somehow, God only knows how Judas ends up being the treasurer. So every time they needed to buy some food or something, Judas would... Can you imagine walking with Jesus for three and a half years, seeing the love, compassion, power, holiness, and the miracles he's doing, and when his back's turned, you're stealing from him? This is remarkable. This shows you the, the, the depths of what sin can do in the lives of individuals. There's nothing, there's nothing that people can't do when they turn away from the Lord. Now, don't think of Judas here as a, a, a programmed victim. He could not help it. He was a robot. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible clearly says, woe to this godless man. But he's always held responsible for it. Now, imagine, here's Judas, who's gone out one day. Jesus gives him power to cast out demons. In the name of Jesus, cast them out. And then at night, he's stealing from the money box. And this is a sobering reminder that there will be people who associate themselves with Christianity who have a very dark side. There's millions of thieves. We get it. But church treasurer thieves? And so from time to time, it's important to just briefly be reminded that we ought not to be shocked when we find a traitor in our midst. But the purpose of that is to encourage us to remember that you're not fooling anyone if you're living a double life but playing the religion game. Jesus warned of this in Matthew 7. He said, someday there will be people who will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did miracles. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now when I, when I read that, I'm like, huh, I don't want that to be me. And I hope any Christian would go, I don't want that to be me. Well, I can assure you that that verse is not designed to frighten tender souls, okay? 
But that verse is designed to warn hard-hearted sinners who are playing games with God. Because Jesus didn't just say, depart from me, I never knew you. He said, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice wickedness. So if you're sitting there thinking, I don't want Jesus to say, I never knew you. If you are troubled about your sin, if you struggle with your sin, if you're like, oh, I want to stop, but God help me. That's a mark of a, of a beautiful relationship with Christ, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. But if you're a liar, a thief, a fornicator, you just do what you want, you do it your way when you want to do it your way, with no concern about right or wrong or what Jesus thinks, be warned here. The Bible says, do not deceive yourself. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If the only thing you've got going for you to make you believe you're a Christian is because you said a prayer when you were five years old at Backyard Bible Club, that's not the mark of a changed heart. So again, I, I want to encourage you, don't wrestle and think, I must be Judas, I'm a terrible traitor, if, if sin bothers you, if you're fearful that you're not saved, if you're crying out for mercy. But be warned, if you're living a total double life and you're playing with God, these verses are designed to awaken you and say, don't fall into this trap. Come, come to Jesus. Jesus says, no one who comes to me will I cast out. So, but the point here is not Judas, but it's Mary. Jesus says, let her alone because she kept it for the day of my burial. What? Nobody else got it. It's, it's comical. Read the Gospel of Mark. On three different occasions, Jesus goes, I am going to suffer, I am going to be crucified, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. And three times in a row, the Gospel of Mark says, but they had no idea what he was saying. They didn't understand it. The saying was hidden from them. Right? Meanwhile, Mary, who used to sit at his feet, she hears Jesus saying the same thing. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. She's like, well, hey, if he's going to die, I might as well anoint him now. She starts getting him ready to die. She seems to be the only one in that time that understood that Christ was going to die. But you know what I see here? It's a really interesting thing. There are so many people that just don't get it. Get what? The death of Jesus. It, is a, uh, it just astounds me. I will talk to people constantly. Hey, man, why do you think God will let you into heaven? Because I'm a good person. Yeah, but wait, I thought you were a Christian. I am. Well, then why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, he died for our sins. Oh, he did. What does that mean? I don't know. He died for our sins. I don't know what that means. Just don't get it, right? And then we start to get it. I go, well, if he died for your sins, that means you're a sinner, and that means you deserve to go to hell. So why, when you're going to stand before God, are you going to say, I'm a good person? Instead of going, well, I don't deserve to go to heaven, but Christ died for my sins. And then they go, oh, yeah, that too. That too? That and purgatory and penance and blah, 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 blah. They just don't get it. And I don't say that to insult you. I say that to plead with you to realize the, 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 the importance and the preciousness of the death of Christ. 
It's everything. And Jesus hung on that cross. He didn't say, I did my part. You do yours. He said, it is finished. And that's the most remarkable thing when God opens your eyes and the Lamb of God becomes real and you go, now I get it. He took all my sins. He took them all. He paid it. It's finished. And now I can be freely forgiven by his grace. So Mary prepares for the hour of Jesus' death. The second thing we're going to find out is that the raising of Lazarus, even the raising of Lazarus, precipitates the hour of Jesus' death. I never, never saw this before until I studied it this week. This is significant. Jesus was doing miracles all the time. And all the Jews of his time were expecting a Messiah. And they were always expecting a Messiah who would conquer the Romans, right? But Jesus went up to Jerusalem for at least three Passovers. Why didn't they have Palm Sunday earlier on? It seems that what triggered Palm Sunday was the raising of Lazarus. But what John's also going to tell us is that the raising of Lazarus didn't just trigger Palm Sunday. It put in motion the death of Jesus. So let's look in verse 9. It says, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Now let's get some context here. When it says a large crowd, according to Josephus, at least 40 years after this, as many as 2 million Jews came to Jerusalem for the Passover. They came from all over the Eastern world because all the Jews didn't live in Jerusalem. 2 million, I mean, I think there's only 3 million in Philly, right? So 2 million people are swarming Jerusalem. There's no room at the end, right? But then word gets out, hey, did you hear about that guy Jesus raised from the dead? He's right down in Ben Salem, two miles away. And so, man, a, a massive crowd of people goes, I want to see that, right? And I guarantee you, think, put yourself back at Bible times. If I put an announcement in the paper, Jesus raised a man from the dead from Langhorn, and we have the doctor here, the medical documents. He was dead for two hours. Come and see him and hear his story. This place would be packed. So these people are like, I got to see this guy. This makes Guinness Book of World Records look like nothing. So it says in verse 10, but the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. John throws that in there. We should be celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus. But no, actually, that's just another thing that precipitates his death. And the reason they wanted to do it, because account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. I love that. I hope that every Sunday people go away from this church and believe in Jesus. I hope that every week people go away from interacting with you and believe in Jesus. And when you go away, you can't go towards Jesus without going away from something else. So if you're clinging to your religion and it's not biblical, go away from it. If you've lived a godless life and you don't care about God, go away from it. In all of your going away, they'll go right toward Jesus and believe in him. So if that wasn't a swelling crowd enough, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they're like, hey, did you get a chance to go to Bethany yesterday? No, there was too many people. Well, don't worry about it. He's coming to Jerusalem. They're like, he's coming? Meanwhile, all the people who had seen Lazarus risen from the dead, they're, they're passing out tracks. I saw it, I saw it, I saw it. So no wonder there's this fomenting excitement. The he's gotta be the Messiah. 
And if he's the Messiah, we've got to go out and meet him. And we've got to throw down our palm branches and we've got to have a parade and we've got to quote scripture and say, Hosanna, Messiah is here. And he's going to be coming on a white horse. And this is going to be good because I want to see him open up a can of whoop. And those Romans are going to get a beat down. Hey, Romans, you better watch it. He's here. But watch what happens. It says, this crowd, when they heard that Jesus was coming, verse 13, took the branches of the trees, and they went out to meet him, and they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. A young donkey? That'd be like announcing, and the next football player who will be starting in the Super Bowl, and he comes running out in a, in a ballet outfit. Be like, that's not what I envisioned. I envisioned him coming on a white horse. What's he doing on a donkey? Well, that's to fulfill the scripture. See, Christ didn't come in his first coming to destroy. He came to give his life. Verse 16 said, these things the disciples didn't understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, remember, the hour when he died and rose again, then the spirit poured out, then they remembered. Verse 17, so the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised from the dead, continued to testify about him. They're spreading out in the crowd, passing out tracts. He is real. He, is, he raised the dead. And that's you and me. We go out in the week and we testify about him. And for this reason, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed the signs. So meanwhile, the Pharisees said to one another, see, you're not doing any good. The world has gone after him. You know what makes me laugh about that? If you told me, hey, Tom, you're not doing any good. The world's going after Jesus. I would go, yes, I am. Yeah, that's what I want to do. Isn't that remarkable? You're really failing here because people are going after Jesus. That's not a failure, folks. That's what we're trying to do. But then something strange happens. In the midst of all these millions of Jews who are gathered around, some Gentiles come walking up. And this is going to precipitate something interesting. So Mary prepares for the hour of Jesus' death. The raising of Lazarus prepares for the hour of Jesus' death. But now the coming of the Gentiles triggers an announcement concerning the hour. And that's where we're going to finish this morning. Some Gentiles show up. And this is significant. Verse 20 says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And maybe these, maybe these were just Greeks who lived up in... Galilee, there were a lot of Greeks in Galilee, and they figured, hey, maybe Philip can, can hook us up. Maybe he can get us some tickets. So they asked him, sir, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. They're like, hey, Jesus, I don't know what to tell you, man, but there's some Gentiles. They want to talk to you. Now, we don't even know whether they got to see him because Jesus didn't go, well, fascinating. Look what he said when they told him, Gentiles want to see you. Verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come. Never said that before. The hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come. Hey, Jesus, there's some Gentiles here to see you. He goes, the hour has come. What do you mean the hour has come? The hour has come for me to be glorified. What, you're going to set up your kingdom now? Not exactly. I'm going to be glorified by dying. Look what he says. They were, these people were from an agrarian society. They understood plants and seeds, and they understood that if you take a seed 
It has to go on the ground and die. But when it dies, then it germinates and bears fruit. So Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I wonder if the disciples are going like this. Oh, boy. Here we go again. Every time I turn around, he's got something to say about seeds. Jesus, this is no time for a farming lesson. The Greeks want to see you. And Jesus goes, no, this is time for a significant lesson. Listen up. That seed is me. And I'm, if I could put it in Texan, I'm fixing to die. Why are you going to die? Because if I die, verse 24, I'm going to bear much fruit. And that's the reason you and I are sitting here today. I hope. Some of you are just sitting here because somebody made you come or you didn't have anything to do. But if you get it, you're here because Jesus died. And you get it. And he was buried and he rose again. And you're the fruit. And I'm the fruit for the glory of God. But before Jesus leaves that, he says, now, here's the thing. If you want to be part of that fruit, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. See, he starts with him, and then he goes to us. He's gone, I don't love my life. I want to die to pay for the sins of the world. But then he says, how about you? Do you love your life? Now, here's the thing. I love my life. I don't have a death wish, do you? Some of you hate your life. You're like, I hate my life. I hate my wife. I hate my job. Stop it. Be grateful that you're alive. But what Jesus meant here, and this is really important, when he said, he who loves his life, what he meant by that is a certain type of living. To love your life is to deny God's control, to deny God's authority over your life. It's basically to say, I want to live my life however I want. And God's not going to tell me how I'm going to live. And Jesus goes, okay. You love being in control of your life? You love being your own boss? You love being Burger King, doing it your way? God and nobody else is going to tell you what to do? Just mark this down. You're going to lose it. Because you're going to die and you're going to stand before God. And he's going to say, I offered to forgive you and save you. But you wouldn't have anything to do with it. But he says, he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. He's not going to ask you to go home and stab yourself. I hate my life and burn yourself. He's just saying, turn from yourself and turn to Christ and follow him by faith. Is there anything like, oh, I don't know what that, what do you mean by that? Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world? You lose your soul. To be a Christian means that I go, I've decided to follow Jesus. You don't have to come up with a list. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Just come as you are. Jesus, I believe you died to save me. And I don't care what people think or anybody else. I'm going to follow you. I believe that you died to save me. He says, you do that. And you'll receive eternal life. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Free. Okay. But then he goes on to talk about if you do follow him, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now, don't miss the significance. I'm getting ready to die. If you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to die. Oh, uh, whoa, hang on. That's not what I, I signed up for my best life now. 
Nobody told me that if I become a Christian, I might have to be willing to die. Well, now they told you. And that's why we need to be praying for Christians all over the world who are being called to die by ISIS and others. And we need to prepare ourselves to say, Lord, give me that faith. Give me that surrender. Give me that power that if I'm called to die, that I'll be like, you can't threaten me with heaven. Because I want to be where Jesus is, and I want to serve him. And some of you are like, I don't know whether I'm going to have to die for Jesus. Here's an easy way to solve that. Just be willing to live for Jesus. Then you already made the decision. Because to live for Jesus means that, hey, I'm willing to do what he wants. If he wants me to die, it's his business. I'm not my own anymore. I gave myself to him. So I want to close where Jesus kind of winds this down. And, and I want you to note, real quickly, several things that, that, that these Gentiles trigger about the hour. So we've seen Mary prepares for the hour of his death. Palm Sunday and Lazarus point to his death. And now, the coming of the Gentiles, Jesus, he's going to say some things about his death that are important, about this hour. Okay, look at verse 27. He says, now my soul has become troubled. And what am I going to say? Father... Save me from this hour. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. First thing I want you to note about the death of Jesus is its primary purpose is to glorify God. We sing this song. Like a rose trampled on the ground you took the fall and thought of me after all <laughs> he did not take the fall because he thought of me actually the words are above all get down here where we belong he took the fall and he thought of God's glory and his glory above all. Could I get an amen? Do you believe that? You're like, no, it was about me. No, it wasn't. It was about God's glory. Hands down. No close seconds. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. I have and I will. And boy, we're still doing that. When you get up and sing about Jesus, we're still glorifying God for the death of Christ. We're singing about it. We're living it out. We, we thank God day by day for it. So remember this about the death of Christ. It's, it's for God's glory. Yes, for my benefit, but it's for God's glory. Secondly, the second thing we note about this, this death of Christ is what Jesus had earlier said. He said, if I die, I'm going to bear much fruit. And listen here. The death of Christ is going to lead to the gospel going to all the nations. Jesus is going to say in just a couple more verses, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. I praise the Lord that Jesus' death wasn't just for Americans. It wasn't just for white and white and white, they're precious in his sight. It was for all the tribes and tongues and people and nation. But if you're worried about those people way over there in the jungle, but you could care less about the people that live next door, smell the coffee. Jesus died to bring a massive 
family of people from all over the world. The death of Christ is for this Gentile inclusion. Two more things that were done. So the crowd of people heard it and they were saying, it's thundered. Let's keep going. Others were saying, an angel spoke. Jesus said, this voice didn't come for my sake, but for yours. Now look here. He says, now the hour is here. Now judgment is on the world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The hour of Christ's death brought about two things. The world's destruction and Satan's destruction. And I am thankful for that. Because this world doesn't have anything to offer but misery. And when the Bible talks about the world, it's not like God wants you to hate globes, hate volcanoes and hate mountains. He wants you to hate this system of people that are in rebellion against God. The Bible says don't be a friend of the world, don't love the world, and don't be conformed to this world. And most of the people right now prancing around on this planet are not poor, ignorant people who just don't get it. They're hostile, hard-hearted rebels, and it shows up in two forms, religious and irreligious. And the Bible says we live in a corrupt and twisted and crooked generation. And they can prance around and have their celebrations and drop their New Year's balls and sing their songs and think they're going to live forever. But judgment is upon this world. And Jesus Christ is going to break through those heavens. And every single soul who ever lived is going to look them in the eye. And many, many of them are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And I thank God because that should be you and me. But because he hung on that cross, right? He says, if you believe in me, you will not be judged. You've passed from death to life. I'm safe and secure, aren't you? In the gospel. Lash yourself to the cross and say, thank you, Lord, that when judgment comes on this world, I'll be accepted. But I like this too. We just sang about the devil. The ruler of this world will be cast out. The death of Christ sets in motion the destruction of Satan. Satan's having a great time. We killed Jesus. And Jesus is going, you're going down, devil. Revelation chapter 12, John says, and I saw Satan cast out of heaven and he knows that his time is short. Well, what's he going to do in the meantime? He's waging war against the saints. The devil hates you and me and that's why we need to be a praying people. I beg you to pray for me and my family and this church and that we will be a sober people who realize this is not a game. We are in spiritual warfare, and the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God. We're not little cowards hiding in bunkers. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to go out and wage war, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. But Paul says in Ephesians 6, when he describes for spiritual warfare, with all prayer and petition, praying for one another, Peter says, be sober and vigilant because your adversary prowls about. Pray for marriages. Pray for us to, to, to be kept pure from sin. Pray for the gospel to spread in this area. And every time a soul gets saved, the Bible says they're translated from the power of Satan to the power of God. Let me close with an application. I'm just going to give one because we're out of time. When Jesus said, when I die, it's going to bear much fruit, Right? It didn't stop with that. When we come to chapter 15, he says this. I have chosen you to go and bear much fruit. And so the death of Christ is designed not only to provide him glory 
and the fruit of our conversion, but then to make our lives fruitful. So here's your assignment as you ponder and praise God and pray over the crucifixion of Christ. Realize that it has a very specific purpose to bring forth fruit in your life. And let me tell you what that looks like. Three things. First of all, it's character. The fruit of the Spirit. Pray to God this week, Jesus, since you died for me, may that bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in my life, a surrender to the Spirit. Help me to be more loving, more patient, more pure and self-controlled and gentle. Not idols, but, but Christ giving me kindness and faithfulness and self-control. Let that fruit show up in your relationships with your kids and with difficult people and your coworkers. Pray that God will bear the fruit of the Spirit in our character. Secondly, pray that it'll show up in your conduct. When we stop doing good works, the Bible says you have become unfruitful. Paul prayed in Colossians 1.10, I pray that you will bear fruit in good works. Some of you are extremely busy for Christ. Some of you aren't. And there's a difference between a good sound excuse and an excuse that sounds good. If you're too busy to do any good for anybody else, stop it. Christ has called us to intentionally do good works. Pray that God will bear the fruit of good works. I don't know what that's going to look like in your life. You don't even have to think them up. God has prepared them beforehand for you to walk in them. Just be willing to help people. And lastly, pray for the fruit of converts. I long to see souls come to Christ. Pray with me on that. Many of you do too. And that happens as we pray. Jesus said in John 15, I chose you that you might go and bear fruit and that your fruit will remain. We celebrate the death of Christ. Let's pray to God that we will seek more Christ-like character. If you're out there going, no, I, I got that. You need humility. <laughs> pray for me. More Christ-like character. More love. More, more Christ-like. More conduct. More good deeds. More abounding in, in work for Christ. If you're too busy to work for Christ, you're too busy. And then third, converts. Lord, give us souls. Not for us, but because they're for your glory. Did I get an amen for that? Will you promise to pray for souls? Pray that every Sunday and every day during the week, the word of God will go forth and bear fruit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are so great, so awesome. We praise you for your word, and we thank you for the death of Christ. Oh, Lord, may it sink deeply into us that when your hour came, it was designed to bear much fruit. Even this morning, I pray that you might convert people to faith in Christ that they might be saved and send out your flock Lord rejoicing that you've done so much for us may we bear fruit in our character our conduct and Lord give us souls we pray in Jesus name amen God bless you have a wonderful week please if you would hurry over to get your children we went a little bit late and I don't want the children's workers to have to and be sure to thank them profoundly thank them, and I'm not kidding, thank them for their ministry to the children.